Welcome to the Absite Smackdown Podcast. We'll talk clinical scenarios, interesting Absite facts, and interesting general surgery knowledge. Now, let's get to it. Hi, welcome back to Absite Smackdown Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica, and with us today, as always, is Dr. David Kashmir. And then we also have joining us Dr. Rhonda Barsom. Hi, guys. Hey, Jessica. Um, Hi. Hi. Good, good to be with you guys both today. I'm really looking forward to it. This is really going to be a great episode. Tell us why. <laughs> well, today we're going to talk all about recent experiences with the website. And we have, like you said, Dr. Rhonda Barsoom, who's uh, from the Project SmackDown team. And it's just been great to work with her as we develop the new edition moving forward uh, for the Absite SmackDown review. Dr. Barsoom is originally, uh, most recently, from New Jersey, and she came through Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, and then now has gone on to be a, a successful PGY3 resident in the GME Consortium residency out of Las Vegas. So just like you said, Jessica, welcome, uh, Dr. Rhonda, to the program. Thank you. So today, uh, we're going to go through uh, just some of the recent experiences. And I know, Jessica, you were talking to me offline before about just how different things are uh, in the age of COVID. I, I know, and we're so lucky today to have Dr. Rhonda with us. Where do we go? Well, Dr. Rhonda, um, thank you again for coming on. I'm so excited to have you on the team and be here with us. And how, what we have been talking a lot about is just how the impact of this year versus your other other residency years, how it's different. We just want to get, because you're a resident year three, what, what you've noticed, what you've experienced and the changes that have happened to you. Yeah. So I think that the patient care has been uh, maintained very well. Um, I am very proud of how our residency program and how the hospital has done a great job, you know, taking care of every patient, regardless of, diagnosis regardless of positive or negative status of COVID. We did, uh, we did absolutely see a very different patient population, different diseases that we're not, we don't know what we're dealing with, um, you know, as a country and as, as a world right now. Um, but the impact on our education has been minimized to say the least really in our, in, uh, in our program, we've, uh, um, maintained our rotations, you know, we maintained our case numbers, we maintained uh, all of our experiences, even our didactics. So um, while it definitely threw us for a loop, you know, this time last year, uh, we've, we've definitely been made stronger and have learned more and have definitely built up, a, you know, a database for research for decades to come. Mm-hmm. So you feel like everything adapted pretty quickly that you guys were already at a place where you we're able to adapt to the changes and still give that level of care, still get your education. What do you think, what do you think prepared you for that? What do you think they had in place that made this easier for you guys to acclimate to the situation? Truthfully, I think our program director, I think Dr. Joseph um, did a great job acclimating us and, you know, having this forethought and um, planning that he needed. So in the beginning of uh, the pandemic, he actually split us up into teams where, every team would take 14 days off and the other team would work the 14 days. And that way that if any one of us was exposed or had even a risk of being exposed, we knew we weren't in the hospital and we knew we had the 14 days to recover after. So um, just having that leadership, I think from Dr. Joseph and our chair, Dr. Ellis, who just 
sat down and just formulated, formulated a plan that was um, both, you know, they, you know, Dr. Joseph always says a good surgeon has plans A through F already in their mind before they walk into the OR. And I feel like for a lot of things in life, he and Dr. Ellis always have plans A through Z. And I think that's what helped us out a lot, help us to acclimate, help us to get our case numbers, um, help us to stay away from places that would, you know, potentially put us at risk. Um, so I, I'm giving him a lot of credit here, really. The Absite Smackdown Podcast. Visit the Smackdown at AbsiteSmackdown.com. Wonderful. That sounds familiar, doesn't it, Dr. Good? Yeah, we must all read from the same book. Um, uh, and it sounds like their background is similar to mine and uh, same kind of attitude. I think that really brings you uh, really pretty far, uh, like Dr. Rhonda said, and uh, that was able to get them through a tough time too. So it's it's good to hear. Uh, what a great plan. And, you know, sounds like a great leadership team there. It's really great. It sounds like it touched also not just on your physical health, but your mental health. That was something that we had talked about um, one of the recent podcasts with Dr. Carlos on how important it is for your residents to not just have your physical health and be in there in your education, but your mental health too, and how that contributes. And so it sounds like your program director really had that in mind with you guys. And it's awesome. Yeah. We have a lot of wellness activities and obviously the wellness activities were kind of uh, stunted because of COVID, but um, we got creative, you know, we had, we had um, Zoom meetings and we had game nights. We had very small, you know, potlucks, but nothing too big, nothing that required us to go out, nothing that required to put us in any type of danger. Um, so we, we maintained our wellness quite well, even both, even mentally. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm really curious, uh, Dr. Rhonda and Jessica, if you don't mind me asking, I'm really curious about any specific things or techniques, just new things you saw that really helped continue on the didactics, even when you couldn't maybe be in the hospital as much, what kinds of special things did you all do? And I've just gotten asked this, you know, to groups around the country, what kinds of special things did you see that really kind of helped it move along, even when you're in such a tough time like COVID? Um, Zoom definitely helped a lot. Um, I don't think we, any of us had even heard of Zoom before COVID started. So thank you, Zoom, <laughs> for starting this. Um, we also, uh, you know, obviously things like our um, clinical skills labs and things like that were, um, you know, at, they were at group settings. Now, you know, you can do individual. We, we do have a clinical skills lab that is 24 hours a day. I think that helped us out a lot and helped us to go in as individuals and kind of not lose our our motor functions and motor skills during COVID era. Um, mm -hmm. So, Dr. I, Rhonda, did you did you do anything different on a personal level this time around for the absite than you've done in previous years? I've also, you know, been able to ask that to all kinds of our colleagues, and I've been really interested to hear some of the answers we've gotten. So, on a personal level, anything different that you did? I did. I um, started studying earlier this year. Um, and I actually started listening to Behind the Knife as well as the um, AppSite Smackdown. I actually bought the videos and the books oh, this year. Okay. So, uh, um, hey, that's what it's for. <laughs> I, I didn't, uh, we weren't for sure that you did or didn't, uh, but it's nice to hear. Um, any other specifics? It sounds like you used a couple different resources, 
besides resources and starting early and listening to the podcast, which we love, which is exactly why we do it. Um, what else? Really nothing. You know, I, uh, I did what most surgery residents know how to do very well. And that's hunker down and study. And for sure, uh, the f- just, you know, as experience goes on and as we see more and as we do more didactics, you learn more and more. And to be honest with you, I credit a lot of it to prayer and, you know, God's walked me through this far and has certainly helped me quite a lot. Um, but you know, personal level wise, I definitely enjoy and retain more when I hear things spoken out loud rather than just reading them from a book. Mm. And I feel that the video series and podcasts help me out a lot more than previous years where I would just read from, you know, Pfizer or anything like that. Oh, what a great attitude. And I'll tell you, um, it's great to hear. I didn't know for sure how much we'd talk about this ahead of time uh, or how much we would talk about this during the podcast, but it's great to hear that you found some of the resources we put out useful. It's the whole reason that we do it. And I thank, you know, Jessica and the publishers, uh, because I really thought about what would I have wanted when I was a resident, what would have helped me and what would have made me be able to study doing different things, driving in the car, et cetera. And so the fact that you're using it for any of that stuff, I love to hear it. Jessica, I know I'm asking a bunch of questions. I know you had a lot of more, a lot more things you wanted to ask, but it's, uh, I'm just so glad to hear it. The Absite Smackdown Podcast, bringing you the best for your Absite review. Well, it's fantastic. I'm an auditory learner as well. And so I have the same experiences. I can read something over and over, but when I hear it, speak it out loud, it's said back to me, I retain the information so much better. And I enjoy that, the part of the series as well. So it's, it's nice to have someone that feels the same way as I do. And you got that from it. So that's super awesome. Um, since we are on the subject of the book right now, and you are going to be a contributor to version three, can we get a little bit into that on your contribution, what you're doing, how you feel about it? Um, I'm going to let you and Dr. David talk about that because obviously he's trauma surgeon too, and you are doing the trauma chapter. So let's get into it. So Rhonda, what has been your <laughs> experience so far with uh, working with things, you know, how does it look to you? Uh, where do you think the work for the third edition should go with the part you're working on and the rest? I'm just interested to hear your input as somebody who's used it. Uh, we get yeah. so much feedback from everybody, so it's so good to hear. But where do you see it going for this upcoming one, especially uh, your section? You know, I I think that the, you know, the book and the videos are done super well and very, um, very high yield information in, in both really. Um, there are, you know, the things that I can see that would make a huge difference are things like maybe putting some information into tables and charts. I feel like I learn more when things are, you know, organized in tables and charts and version three, I think, including some of those. And I've already actually looked at the chapter and kind of, um, even while I was studying, kind of put things in my own tables and charts to help me learn it better. Um, and, you know, pull things from different sections and actually incorporate them because as I'm learning, let's say acute care surgery, there's also parts or, you know, in trauma, there's also parts like say from the pediatric section that would have gone really well, you know, in the trauma section, while we don't want to repeat certain things, putting these things together and kind of building a correlation, I think 
um, would help people, even if they hadn't already correlated them in their minds, they can then correlate them on paper and then, you know, maybe a light bulb will go off. And I think that would help out a lot more people. Well, so interesting that you say that because as we went through the first and second editions with our colleagues, we kind of had to balance, hey, do we put this again in this chapter? Well, how long is this thing right now? Is this going to fit in your pocket? And, and those kinds of things. So it's like trade-off. Yeah. The first edition was super small. We really wanted it to be in the pocket. The font was small. We got feedback. All right, guys, you probably need some bigger font. And then for the second one, uh, we did just what you said. Uh, we kind of, uh, although we changed the font, things like that, we added some stuff from other chapters. We expanded it. And there's this balance between you now have a huge book. Congratulations. It's too big. Or, uh, you know, this fact should go here. This fact should go here. So it's great to have you on the team. I think that's valuable feedback. And it's also great because sometimes the feedback we get is very strange. Uh, I'll tell you this, and we haven't talked about it much. Jessica and I sometimes see the online feedback. She passes it to me and the, the publishing team passes it to me. And we'll get some things like the videos don't track, the lectures don't track the book at all. And they're totally different. And we, and I, I, I'm amazed by it because I really feel like they tracked it pretty well. The, the guys made the slides and passed them along. They went right from the book. And I, I felt like the lectures tracked it pretty well. So it's always tough because we want to listen to feedback. The idea is for every edition to be better. So it's more useful uh, for all the guys and girls using it. And it's just really interesting because sometimes we get stuff and we don't know what to do with it. Sometimes it's from other publishers. They're people who have never even watched the videos because the, they can see who's watched them. So your feedback is super valuable. And I'm really uh, excited to see what the next edition of the thing looks like. I think it's going to be great. Um, any thoughts on that? Or what are, what are your thoughts on that about the lectures tracking the videos or, or anything like that as someone else who's used it to review? I think the videos track the book quite well. There are times where, you know, it's a page ahead or a page before, but um, I can always honestly say, I know where you're going when you're talking. Like, I know, I know what things you're putting together and I know why you like maybe skipped a page to talk about something and then came back to the topic that you were talking about. Oh. And it, it just made, it just flows, you know, you can't just, you're not following a script more. You're following um, you know, you're, you're an educator, you're a teacher, you're following the train of thought that requires you to teach something completely and accurately. No. So no, I think that the video flows quite well with actually. With well, the, I appreciate it. And under coming attractions, before we get to the next part, Jessica, I hope you don't mind me giving it away. Uh, the team is, uh, early on, they said, um, hey, David, would you please do these talks? Uh, but now as it's, you know, so gotten so much bigger, uh, the goal is to not have David do all these talks and it's mm -hmm. going to be uh, passed along to our colleagues in different ways, which I think is great. So uh, anyhow, coming attraction, because you never know, sometimes you just don't connect to a person who's reading it and having and, and lecturing or talking or interacting with you. And so having more people do that, I think is going to be fantastic because if, hey, if Dr. A didn't work for you too, but too well, Dr. B and Dr. C, they're coming. Those will be great. So anyhow, I, again, appreciate your feedback so much. Jessica, what else? What else do we need to cover? The 
Absite Smackdown podcast is based on the best-selling review book, Absite Smackdown. The only Absite review with an entire video review course included. Visit AbsiteSmackdown.com and pick it up today. Um, I mean, she's doing a great job. We didn't even have to pay her and look at her giving you prompts. No, I, I am super excited about that. Um, and, and for all your feedback, I'm glad it's positive. Um, some of the things you mentioned today that like, I definitely want to talk about that with you when we're done with this, cause some great ideas coming up. Um, why we do have you on and it's awesome to talk about the book and everything. I would like to talk just a little bit more about the trauma and scenarios and um, have you and Dr. David talk about that and get away from the book just a little bit, if that's okay with you, Dr. David. Yeah. I remember you said, we're going to try to incorporate some clinical scenarios and uh, Dr. Rhonda, our colleague, Dr. Barson was nice enough to say, sure, we can do a brief scenario. Um, I feel like I've talked a bunch already, but I do enjoy doing this. And, so uh, we'll get to it. And um, Dr. Rhonda, I mentioned uh, to you briefly before we went on that we'll probably talk about uh, a 35-year-old male who it, uh, you are on call, I should start off with, for uh, the Emergency Department for Trauma Responses, probably familiar to you as a PGY3. And sure enough, you get called when you're on call because a 35-year-old male is in a motor vehicle collision along the Las Vegas Strip. Uh, I don't know what would make this Las Vegas, as opposed to any other place, maybe he's covered in glitter. I don't know what you guys, it just seems like it's more, there's just so much more stuff in Las Vegas. I don't know what, but the point is he, he comes in uh, as a trauma response and uh, sure enough, you're paged to the emergency department. How do you respond? Okay. So I'm on call. So I'm going to go see the patient, do a focus history and physical and, you know, start with my ABCs and start my resuscitation adequately. Yeah, so sure enough, uh, EMS brings the patient in and uh, you get an ample history. Uh, no allergies that you know of. They don't really know any meds. Past medical history, not really sure. Last meal, nobody knows. And what happens is uh, he and another friend, someone else, were driving in this car where he was the passenger and at a high speed, uh, sure enough, a motor vehicle collision head on. Uh, he was intubated at the scene uh, without difficulty and he is intubated uh, and sedated and paralyzed, uh, chemically paralyzed as he gets uh, wheeled in. Any other specific information uh, that you want before you proceed? Uh, so what kind of access do I have on him? Yeah, so they do have two large bore IVs. And uh, just to get us focused on the topics that we wanna get to today, uh, and I won't uh, save them here in the video, but we'll put it in the links beneath uh, so that I'm not tipping off Dr. Barson for where we're going or what we're covering. But I'll tell you, he's got two large bore IVs. Uh, his endotracheal tube does seem to be in place. He's hemodynamically stable with a heart rate of uh, 110 sustained, but uh, his systolic blood pressure is 120 uh, and he's uh, 120 over 80. He is being assisted uh, with uh, the Ambu bag. You, you guys are going to transition him to the ventilator, uh, but his endotracheal tube is confirmed in place. Um, any other specific information before you go on? So now that we have our airway, breathing, circulation all under wraps, um, we can't get an adequate GCS, obviously, or appropriate GCS. So I guess at this point, exposure to what injuries do I find? Yeah. So uh, sure enough, uh, you, it's, you're not really able to understand his disability level too well. He's chemically paralyzed, but you are able to take everything off, roll him. He has decreased rectal tone, of course. Uh, you're you don't see any limb deformity in particular. 
and the rest of his exam, of course, is severely limited by his paralytic. But he does have equal chest rise and fall on breathing exam, like you said. Uh, and he doesn't, it, there again, no obvious extremity deformities. His pelvis is stable when you push on it. Uh, and um, really the exam overall doesn't show you much and is very limited. However, you think when you look at him that he may have a seatbelt sign. Just when you take his, uh, his uh, clothes off, uh, you do see across his lower abdomen some bruising. Looks like it may be a seatbelt sign. How do you proceed? So this sounds like it was a high or high level mechanism of injury. Um, I'd like to take him, given that he's hemodynamically stable, I would like to take him for a CT of his chest, abdomen, and pelvis. But given the seatbelts on, I would also like to obtain a CTA of his neck to evaluate for any um, blunt cerebral vascular injury. So Dr. Rhonda, um, I probably wasn't as clear as I should have been. His seatbelt sign is on his lower abdomen. Um, but uh, let's say, and I don't usually change the scenario, and we're not exactly doing this oral board style. Let's, let me be clear and say he doesn't have any uh, seatbelt sign on his neck. Uh, and he uh, does have one on his lower abdomen, which is where I was trying to go before. My question to you, and you mentioned screening him for a blunt cerebrovascular injury. Who, who do you like to screen for blunt cerebrovascular injuries? Who do you feel we should screen for blunt cerebrovascular injuries? Yeah, so the literature is actually quite clear about uh, screening that um, entails signs and symptoms as well as high risk factors and a high energy transfer mechanism um, mm -hmm. as, is actually one of the risk factors for a blunt cerebrovascular injury. Okay. Um, now we don't, you know, we haven't seen anything on him yet to indicate that he's got a hemorrhage from his, say his nose, his nose or his neck. And, um, we can't really, um, identify a neurological deficit, but given that he required even intubation in the field, you know, I'm not sure if he's got a traumatic brain injury either way, if his GCS was less than six in the field, that would also put him at a high risk for a, a blunt cerebrovascular injury. Yeah. I completely agree with what you said. And I'm curious in follow-up, you know, one of the indications for blunt cerebrovascular injury is decreased GCS. But you know, Dr. Rhonda, we get all these patients who come in intubated and sedated, and you can't really get a great neuro exam on them. They just had their paralytic or something along those lines. What are your thoughts on screening those patients? Do you feel like we should be screening them when we can't be sure of their GCS or if it's low because it's medicated and low uh, and they're intubated and we can't even get an exam. What are your thoughts? I think the mechanism of injury is actually very important in circumstances like that. I mean, if a um, patient has a low GCS or it's not screenable because of, let's say a patient was found down, it's very different than a patient was on in a head-on collision on, you know, at high speeds. Okay. Um, and it is highly suspicious that he would have a, a, uh, um, a strong force that would cause this that would cause an injury. And that's why I, I believe screening him. The other thing is, you know, I know we're already obtaining imaging. And if I'm concerned about something, um, I feel that screening, especially in a, in a institution where it is accessible is definitely indicated at this point. So Dr. Rhonda, sure enough, you take him over to the CAT scanner, uh, CT of the head demonstrates no obvious injury. Um, of course, you know, like you said, he, he may have uh, anything from anoxic injury that shows up later. All these things can show up later, but there's no obvious uh, intraparenchymal, subdural, epidural, uh, and no skull fracture. 
Uh, his CT chest, abdomen, pelvis, he does have a, a pulmonary contusion on the left with a couple of ribs injured, uh, but no significant hemothorax. And again, abdomen, pelvis, uh, no, um, uh, no obvious injury, maybe a small adrenal lesion on the left, uh, you know, one of those kind of incidental adrenal lesions. But sure enough, on his CTA of the neck, he does seem to have a, a low-grade injury uh, on that left side. Um, so what are your thoughts on what makes an injury low grade? Uh, and have you heard of this, uh, sometimes called the, uh, biffle, uh, grade, uh, biffle grading system or Denver grading system just depends. They yeah. get called both. Um, what have you seen with that? And what do you feel makes an injury pretty low grade? Yeah. So we use, or I'm more familiar with the Denver criteria and that's a, you know, grading system that is a one through five, one being, um, a small uh, or a very minor injury that results, I believe, in less than 25% luminal stenosis with a level two being greater than 25. And I think a grade three is a pseudoaneurysm with a grade four being a total occlusion and a grade five being a transection of the vessel. Well, sure so, enough, just like you said, this is one of those low-grade injuries. You described it very well. And now that we have it, what do we do with it? What do we do with patients like this? So, um the literature states that a low grade injury, grade one or two, um, you know, if it's a grade two or higher, some people will talk about surgically accessible or not. However, um, most of the time, these great, very low grade, grade one or two actually end up starting on antithrombotic management, such as heparin. Um, and then a CTA is actually repeated in about seven to 10 days. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Eventually, during this hospital course, uh, you're able to pretty quickly uh, wake the gentleman up and uh, get him extubated. His pulmonary contusion is pretty um, minor. He doesn't have a clinically significant flail chest. You're able to get him extubated. And sure enough, just about seven days later, when he happens to still be in the hospital, uh, you are able to uh, re-image him. Uh, it does look like it's still there, or at least the radiologist is not sure. So how do you proceed when you prep someone like this for discharge? Yeah, so this specific kind of patient who on repeat imaging still does have an injury would actually be on an antithrombotic agent for about six months after discharge. Mm -hmm. um, some people would consider stenting if it does become severe or it, you know, injury starts expanding into a pseudoaneurysm or such, um, or having any type of neurological function issues. But uh, generally it is an antithrombotic agent for about six months yeah. after discharge. And so you do, you're able to transition from that heparin you gave him early on to uh, now Coumadin and he seems to be a Coumadin candidate and then he's able to be discharged. You know, first off, I really enjoyed talking with you about this. I think you absolutely nailed it with what's a very standard practice. And when we get these patients, I wanted to share with you and the people out there who may listen, one of the hardest parts is they often don't just have, you know, a blunt cerebrovascular injury. They may have a splenic injury. They may mm -hmm. have a pulmonary contusion with a small hemothorax and different centers do treat those differently. Some will anticoagulate even with, you know, low grade splenic injuries and they watch the spleen. Um, and these are different options. So blunt cerebrovascular injuries evolved so much since I first started uh, in trauma. And I'm curious, Dr. Rhonda, have you seen any of the unfortunate or downsides of blunt cerebrovascular injury where it wasn't caught and the patient, God forbid, had a stroke or something. Have you seen any of that yet in your practice? I have not, fortunately. Um, we do screen quite readily um, okay. for kind of injuries. So I, you know, that's the 
one of the downsides of screening too much or too little, but when we do screen, we find them. So, yeah. And, and like you said, you, you don't want to end up with everybody's sort of nightmare where the next day uh, they start to have neurosymptoms and that's the typical time course when it doesn't get seen, they have neurosymptoms uh, and they, you know, have a infarct and, oh my gosh, it's, it's just terrible. So it sounds like you're, and how you're being taught is uh, really the much more uh, standard way of doing it. And um, it's a good thing that you haven't had to see the downsides of uh, maybe not catching one. So, you know, great talk with you about it. And I'll tell you once again, that blunt cerebrovascular injury management has changed so much. So Jessica, that's kind of how we do it nowadays with these injuries. And I appreciate you letting me talk through um, uh, one of the scenarios with Dr. Barsoom like that. That's great. I get to learn every day. Well, guys, thank you so much for being on today. Um, is there anything else that we want to add or talk about before we sign off? I'll just reinforce uh, how good it is to hear. Um, the reason we spend the time and do all the work is for colleagues like Dr. Barsoom who have, uh, who have the ability to use all this stuff and use the podcast and hopefully use daily absite fact, uh, Jessica, and all the other things you guys do to get the message out there. It's really what I would have wanted uh, when I was a resident. So I just can't tell you both how glad I am to hear it, uh, that it's getting used like that. I appreciate you guys a lot. And thank you so much for um, putting together something that is super helpful for all of my colleagues and me and all the generations to come of future surgeons. So thank you. Hey, that's nice of you. It's great to have you on the team this year. And, uh, you know, yes, uh, thank you guys too. We're thanking each other all the time, but I, again, I can't say enough about it. So thanks Jess for the uh, being the publisher, a uh, part of the publication team. You guys make my job super easy. That's all I know. All right, guys, thank you so much for being on today and thanks for listening and we'll see you again next time. Don't forget, hashtag Absite Smackdown. Thanks for listening to the Absite Smackdown podcast. Visit us at absitesmackdown.com for more great absite facts.